Ultra. All this season on Legacy Door. Crazy, she said, as photos of the couple appeared. Abigail Strauss and Harrison Reese. To look at as pretty a pair of rich youth as you could want. I noticed this girl waiting behind me. She smiled in my direction as if she had somewhere better to be, but didn't mind looking at me in the meantime. I let her go first, then spent the next three minutes looking around idly, in the certain knowledge that if she asked me to go to the party, or anywhere, I would. She turned around, seemed vaguely surprised to see me still there, gave the tiniest wave, and left. Whatever it is, I'm going to find out. It would be better for everybody if you just tell me. But I can't. Why don't you just ask your dad? I can't even say what the most idiotic part of that question is. Legacy Door, Episode 1.9, Motives. Vanessa Dorn, 9.04 a.m. After storming out of the house, Vanessa tried to cool herself down with a stroll around the grounds. When people proved unreliable, she could sometimes find company in the more dependable trees and sculptures and hiding places of her youth. It amazed her that Dan still had the ability to infuriate her so instantly. She then edited her amazement, deciding that capacity was more accurate than ability, given that she doubted he had any conscious control over it. Years of therapy and self-examination told her that a lot of it must stem from jealousy, of him still having both his real parents when they were growing up, and of her father's abiding fascination with the Lutcher family. No one else in Arthur Dorn's life, including his children, got his attention, unless they proved themselves worthy of it. But when the Lutchers came around, Arthur transformed, always trying to prove his worthiness to them. This attention had mostly been focused on Dan's father, and she recalled hers being at pains to make the nervous Tom Lutcher feel happy and secure. But Dan got some of it too, favored and indulged over the other kids. As a result, Vanessa had always resented Dan and the younger kids' adoration of him, and this had colored her reaction to nearly everything he did. But when Dan's father died, her view of the world changed overnight. The man who made her father act like a different person was gone forever, and Dan was no longer the boy with two live parents. Now both of them were damaged young people, their future up to factors beyond their control. Seeing him at the funeral trying to comfort his sobbing mother. She regretted every cruel thing she'd done, said, or even thought. Memories of these cruelties piled up in her mind, forming an overwhelming tidal wave of guilt. She couldn't stand to watch the mourners and didn't want them to see her increasingly uncontrollable reactions. She headed for the bathroom and found an old storage place in the basement. It felt right to be sitting, dressed up, amongst all that broken and discarded finery of funerals past. And when Dan walked in, looking lost in his suit, she knew he belonged there too. Another fractured, abandoned, beautiful thing. On his face, she could see sadness and a need matching her own. Every tender feeling toward him she'd ever buried, a rich vein accumulating for years, came into the light all at once. And she went a little crazy. She wanted to touch him and taste him and take him out of the moment to expose every part of him to every part of her. She'd have eaten him alive if she could, or happily let him do the same. 
There was a moment of painful, self-destructive, life-affirming bliss. Quickly begun, even more quickly ended. Uncle Frank. Exposure. Humiliation. And Dan's total failure to help. Thinking about it made her shudder as she walked. Hormonal stupidity, mixed with instant punishment. Mixed with even more of the goddamn luchers. She didn't know why Dan had been exiled after that day. And in unusually honest moments, she missed him. But she never made a peep about it to anyone. Until, that is, she couldn't keep it inside anymore and dumped the whole thing on one unlucky acquaintance. Vanessa approached the sculpture closest to the house, the bronze of Athena, her favorite goddess. No one else found the statue as fascinating as she did. But perhaps to get it, you had to be the motherless extension of a negligent but overbearing father. Athena starting from the ultimate, unpromising beginning, had become the paragon of wisdom, the patron of a great city, and a part-time war goddess, who was at least the equal of the full-time war god. And she bore the Aegis, to shield her father from harm. For years, Vanessa had considered her father the smartest and strongest man in the world. And if he didn't seem to truly love her, that seemed like something she could fix, if she could just become good enough to earn it prove that she was like him and not like her mother. But recent revelations had made her doubt him, and there had been nothing on his part to allay the doubts. He hadn't called on her to shield him in his time of need. He'd called on Dan. And she had no more confidence in her cousin's abilities than Athena had in Ares's. And even if Dan had been more able, he didn't know the things Vanessa knew. It startled her to realize that four days earlier, she had known as little as he did. She'd finished her Thursday classes and driven up to Chicago with her roommate, Magda. All without a care. Or at least, with cares that now seemed inconsequential. She hadn't told her parents she'd be in Chicago that night, but that was just so she could hang out with friends without getting a guilt trip from her mother. Stepmother, she corrected herself. It was a distinction she'd tried to suppress as a child. Grateful, as she generally was, to have any kind of mother. But now it seemed important to consider things and people exactly as they were, not how she wished they were. Back on that other night, she and seven quickly gathered friends and friends of friends got together for a forget school, forget diet, forget boys blowout at a loud, popular pizzeria in River North. One of her oldest friends couldn't make it, but apparently mentioned the get-together to a mutual acquaintance who could one Ven hadn't thought to invite. Abigail Strauss. Vanessa emitted the obligatory squeal upon seeing her. The years had made Abby beautiful, without taking away the mousy intensity that could sometimes make her a lot to deal with. Another friend arrived at the same time, so amidst mutual introductions, the customary hug was neglected without Vanessa missing it. Abby had never been her best friend or schoolmate, their interactions had mostly been in a series of weekend dance classes through their childhood and adolescence. Abby's father lived on the Gold Coast, close to Chicago's downtown, while Vanessa's house was an hour's drive away on the suburban North Shore. And while wealth created a lens that made distant families aware of each other, proximity remained important for casual socializing. So there was a mild but constant current against a close friendship, and Vanessa had not put in the effort necessary to swim against it. But her greeting was still heartfelt. She and the younger, smaller girl had been partners of sorts in the dance classes, and Abby was the co-owner of happy tween and teen memories that otherwise would have been Vanessa's alone. Walking in the garden, 
Vanessa wondered why she picked Abby as her class friend. Most of the girls had been Ven's age or older, Abby being something of an upstart, so associating with her had almost certainly distanced Vanessa from a higher-status crowd. But a moment of self-examination gave her the answer. Their family situations. Abby had told her, early on, and wide-eyed as always, that she rarely saw her mother. She spoke of Antoinette Fulgier the way a fatherless boy might speak of a sports hero he'd fixated on as a fantasy dad, including that Fulgier's global pursuit of archaeological knowledge was the reason Abby and her siblings had to grow up without her. Vanessa now realized that she had tolerated the tag-along protégé because she saw her as a more vulnerable version of herself, one who the other girls considered to be as crazy as Vanessa often felt. And Abby didn't even have a stepmother. Years into this relationship, however, Antoinette Fulgier had turned out to be flesh and blood. An idiosyncratic woman with a dancer's build, tan skin, unruly hair, and a quilted dress with heavy black tights underneath arrived to pick up Abby after class and introduced herself to Vanessa. She did so with a special attentiveness, probably having gotten the impression from the moonstruck Abby that Vanessa was particularly important to her. But even as Vanessa felt warm in Antoinette Fulgier's regard, Something within her itched. Abby was not so like her after all. She had a mother. And that mother was just enough like the one Vanessa half-imagined and half-remembered from her own childhood that Ven couldn't help being angry with her. After all, Vanessa's mother had taken her with when she ran away. Antoinette Fulgier had left Abby behind. And if the result had been that Fulgier was alive, while Therese Lutcher Dorn had died... That just created more resentment. All this struck an unfair blow to Vanessa's friendship with Abby, but not the last. Back on Thursday, as Vanessa was hugging her other friend, Abby spoke into Ven's ear, at a volume that would have been loud in another setting, but passed as confidential that night. Can we talk a little after this? There's something serious. Here, Vanessa turned to her, concerned, causing Abby to add with a nervous smile. But it can wait. Vanessa nodded smiled back carefully, and replied, Of course. She released the newcomer and looked at the younger woman more intently. Abby was wearing a light beige wide-neck sweater, made to hang low on one side and display part of one bare shoulder. The asymmetry, meant to be cute, gave Abby's whole appearance an unbalanced, unsteady quality. Seeing Vanessa notice this, Abby shrugged her shoulder, pulled the sweater into a better alignment, gave an ostentatiously large grin, and made everything seem normal. So Vanessa immediately decided that either Abby's news wasn't worth worrying about, or Abby didn't want to let on how worrying it was. Ven decided to let it go. If there was trouble, she could wait a few hours to be troubled by it. The rest of the gathering was free and easy, but after ten o'clock, thoughts of the morrow began to creep in, and the ladies excused themselves one by one. Vanessa yawned, done in by the day's long drive, and thought about turning in herself but Abby's strained smile reminded her of their unstarted business. Well, thought Vanessa, the weeknight timing would make that pretty easy to arrange. No one was likely to dead-dog the party. She turned to Magda, both because Mag would be the one most affected by Vanessa's movements, and because she, like Vanessa, had no work or school to go to in the morning, and therefore was making no preparation to leave. Vanessa leaned over to her and spoke in a low tone, the whole place having gotten quieter. Abby's got something on her mind. I don't know where she'll want to spill it, but I guess I'll be going off with her for a while. Oh, really? Does she do that a lot? Not in a long, long time, said Vanessa. 
Magda nodded and shrugged. Okay. Do you remember the front door code? They were both crashing with Magda's friend, Cynthia, who lived nearby but had begged off their invitation because of a work project. Vanessa took out her phone. Uh, give it to me again? Magda did so, and Vanessa made it a note on Cynthia's address book entry. I'll probably stay up, so just knock at the upstairs door, but I'll keep my phone on loud in case you need to call and wake me up. Vanessa nodded, and Magda apparently took this all as her cue to exit, standing and gathering her things. Vanessa stood too, and they shared a brief hug. Don't do anything I wouldn't do, sing-song Magda into her ear. That doesn't cover much. Magda backed out of the hug and stuck her tongue out with sour amusement. The other partiers were all on their feet now. Vanessa Rising had made the cue general. Hugs, well wishes, and fragments of plans for the future were exchanged as they meandered out to the street. Since everyone was leaving anyway, Vanessa subtly steered things so that she, Magda, and Abby were the last left on the curb. That way their plans could be clarified privately. All right, said Vanessa, as Abby cheerfully waved at a departing car two of the girls had hired. Magda's walking back. Where are you and I going? Uh said Abby, shifting gears, her face dropping. She spoke in a tone low enough that Magda, a few steps away, craned her head to hear. I've got a room over at the Fairfield. She pointed furtively, hand at waist level, in the direction of the hotel a block and a half away. Magda snorted. Vanessa shrugged at her, then pointedly raised her hand and flexed her fingers in the wave children used to indicate, bye-bye. Magda shrugged back turned on her heel, and walked off in the opposite direction without a word. "'Nice to meet you,' said Abby to Magda's retreating back. Magda waved over her shoulder without looking. Abby took a quick, emotional breath, and with a nervous look at Vanessa, started walking toward the hotel. Vanessa kept pace. Half-remembered facts about Abby nagged at Vanessa, and she tried to fit them together, then asked, "'Where did you say you're living now?' Abby's reply was automatic. I live with a roommate up near Loyola. Vanessa nodded. She'd thought that was it, but... So why do you have this hotel room? As they walked through the automatic door, Abby said... I don't. Yet. <laughs> Vanessa laughed with mild disbelief. She was generally the eccentric rich girl at social gatherings, if anyone was. But Abby had her beat. As they approached the front desk, Abby transformed, animatedly talking about how much she looked forward to seeing the musical Hamilton, and about restaurants she wanted to try. Vanessa's unprepared responses were monosyllabic, but she tried to match the tone. Abby stopped her litany each time the desk clerk requested information from her, but the young man did not attempt to insert any small talk. Abby kept up her impressive patter all the way to the elevator. Once the doors closed, she faltered somewhat, but kept it going, in a lower tempo. Vanessa began to really wonder what this was about. Her initial suspicions had been vague, that perhaps Abby was considering law school and wanted advice, or was looking for help for an old dance teacher or friend. Perhaps she wanted the unvarnished truth about a boy of Ven's acquaintance, or to enlist Ven's help in some charitable or political cause. But now none of that seemed big enough. She thought of Daisy Buchanan in the early parts of Great Gatsby, joking about Nick Carraway falling in love with her, until his odd behavior finally convinced her that he really was in love with her. In the present time, walking amidst the sculptures, Vanessa noted that even though Daisy and Nick had been cousins, she hadn't thought about Dan in that moment. He'd been that far off her radar. 
Back in the hotel, the love idea hadn't caused Vanessa any special concern. If Abby had developed a nostalgic crush on Ven, they weren't good enough friends to make disabusing her a particularly onerous task. And anyway, Daisy had been wrong about Nick. He'd just been a stalking horse for Gatsby, and it was hard to see how Abby could have hidden some old flame in the room she'd only just booked. Thoughts of old flames also didn't bring Vanessa's mind to Dan. Instead, she'd begun to wonder just how volatile Abby's reaction to rejection might be, and took comfort in the fact that Magda knew who she was with and where they were going, even if some of the information accompanying those facts had turned out to be lies. Also comforting was that Abby knew Magda knew. If Abby suggested going to a third location, Vanessa intended to balk. Abby opened the door to room 712. Vanessa felt sure that whatever this was would become clear inside it. She tried to look unconcerned as she entered, but barely suppressed a startle when the weighted door thudded closed behind her. Okay, let's sit down, said Abby, starting to speak before she entered Vanessa's sightline and then grabbing a rolling chair. Vanessa took the easy chair for herself. Sorry for being weird about everything, Abby continued, but I'm really freaked right now. It's fine, said Vanessa automatically. The irritated note in her own voice displeased her, and she tried to display more girlish interest by adding, Come on, spill. Okay, said Abby with a big inhale. First of all, do you know Harrison Bell? I mean, Harrison Reese, either one. Now Vanessa's brow furrowed. The first version sounded vaguely familiar, but she suspected it just had a protagonistic ring to it. Not sure. Who is he? He's four years older than me. Which meant two older than Vanessa, who took a moment's amusement in how the significance of such age gaps had shrunk since her and Abby's dance class days. A guileless smile spread on Abby's face as she continued. His parents are rich Southsiders. He went to Ancona, then Lab, then U of C. While noting the pleasure Abby took in talking about Harrison, Vanessa tried to fill in enough context to jog her memory. Rich Southsiders probably meant black or ethnic, and given the surnames, she figured black. If they'd been white-bred Caucasians, Abby would have named one of the enclaves for affluent whites on the south side of Chicago, such as Hyde Park. It seemed like he'd gone to school in Hyde Park but not lived there. More context. Abby went on as Vanessa processed. Now he's doing wealth management at Bright Light. Not bad. Thanks, said Abby, which made Vanessa chuckle. Abby's gratitude for a compliment to Harrison was cutely telling. Vanessa used the momentary silence to answer an earlier question. No, she said more firmly. I'm pretty sure I don't know him. I avoid that whole area like the plague. Every place you turn is the setting of some story from Dad's college days. Abby's attention perked up at the mention of Vanessa's father, and it seemed to give her some courage to continue. Well, she said, Harrison grew up in a mansion in Kenwood an old neighborhood north of Hyde Park that Vanessa remembered as highly mixed racially and economically. It was in his mother's family. His great-grandmother left it to her. And I guess there were stories around that there'd been parties there with strange people. Masquerades, some people said orgies, or black magic. The usual, you know? Vanessa nodded. In her experience, people loved to talk about how crazy the rich were. Abby spoke more confidently, warming to her subject. But I think there was extra, because they weren't just rich, but also black, and had strong women involved. Since people already thought that was strange, they paid closer attention, or maybe made stuff up. Vanessa nodded again. She had been on the verge of asking how the family made their money, and was glad she hadn't, 
realizing that she would not have asked that about a white family whose money passed through the men. Anyway, his dad died of a heart attack a few months back, and Harrison has been rooting around the mansion on weekends trying to help organize things. He found some old home videos and hooked up a tape machine to a computer to transfer them into digital files. And, well, apparently they had a big security system, because, you know, the South Side. Vanessa nodded yet again. And he found a closet full of old tapes from the security cameras. Apparently there were ten sets at a time, so they'd have a reach back in case something valuable went missing. You know, not just burglars, but also the employees, and I guess the kids and their friends. Vanessa kept nodding. Her father didn't go in for such things, but plenty of Lake Foresters did. Now, each tape was supposed to be re-recorded ten times, then kept for a few months, then destroyed. But apparently, they weren't strict about any of it, and when they computerized the system, they just forgot about them, and it was all a jumble. So since Harrison was in a mode of looking into family history, he had the computer roll each tape into a file while he was doing other stuff, and then he'd sweep through it quickly to see if there was anything interesting. And he found a lot of random stuff, of the family and the kids' friends, but also people arriving for parties he hadn't known about, except from the rumors. Vanessa stopped nodding and perked up, reasoning that the bombshell must be close. There were no cameras in the rooms where the parties were held, but he got people arriving and leaving, and sometimes they really were in masks. So he got very curious and looked closer. And he showed me this. It's from sometime in the early 90s. Abby took out her phone, pressed the screen a couple times, and showed Vanessa a silent black-and-white video clip, wherein a black woman in a dark gown and a white man in a light suit entered a vestibule from the inside, conferring about something— making a striking, contrasting couple in monochrome. Abby paused it with a touch. That's Dad. The way he looked when I was really little, Abby said. Huh, said Vanessa. He was pretty handsome. Jonathan Strauss's pairing with Antoinette Folgier now fit her sense of aesthetics better than it had before. Yeah, and the woman he's talking to is Harrison's mom. I didn't know their family at all growing up, and Harrison didn't know mine— he saw my dad on several tapes, and then did research until he figured out who he was. He went to talk to him, but Dad stonewalled. I overheard and looked up Harrison, and, well, that's how we got to know each other. Vanessa smiled, but with a little confusion. So why are you showing me this? Abby took a deep breath and unpaused the clip. Keep watching. A third figure entered the vestibule, arms forward, as if to kiss Harrison's mother in a friendly greeting. She retreated a step, and Abby's father put up a hand to stop the newcomer at the shoulder. The figure began to convulse. Vanessa had prepared herself to see her father. After all, he loved to humble brag about the bohemian Southside soirees of his younger days. But this wasn't him. Too tall, too thin. And as the face turned up towards the camera, she could see that the convulsions were laughter— and the face was Frank Lutcher's. Vanessa gasped and crossed her arms in front of her chest protectively. She was 14 again, and she'd been caught with Dan's hands on her, and those old eyes were drilling into her soul. And in the present, walking through the sculpture garden, she felt a twinge to do the same thing. So it's true, Abby said. That's your Uncle Frank. Vanessa looked at her with terror. For a moment it felt like she was exposed, and everyone knew her secrets. But she took a breath and sorted it out. At age 14, 
She had her old grade school friends and her new high school friends. Abby was neither. Their friendship was a thing apart. So Abby was the one person she told about the encounter with Dan and Frank at the funeral. Abby had taken it in, feeling it deeply. So deeply, it made Vanessa uncomfortable. Abby had also come up with her own tales of adolescent embarrassment in order to put them on an even footing. But to Vanessa, those stories hadn't measured up, and she could feel herself slipping further away from Abby, unwilling to look at the person who knew her secret. They'd never been the same after that. Perhaps Vanessa had known it would happen, and that was another reason she picked Abby, because their friendship was disposable. Then could put the memory in her and then bury her like a time capsule. But now Abby had dug her way back into Vanessa's life, and the capsule's contents were spilling out. Yeah, that's definitely him. Did you recognize him from what I said all those years ago? No, I didn't know him at first. After Harrison showed me this, I promised to help ID him. He found some clues in his father's things that narrowed it down, and I looked for pictures to go with the names, but as soon as I saw your uncle's name on the list, I had a feeling he was the one. How well do you know him? Not at all. I haven't seen him since the funeral, and not much before that. I remember Dad would fall over himself to impress him the couple of times I did see him, but Frank would treat him like a panhandler. That makes sense. What? None of this makes sense. What do you mean? It makes sense with other stuff Harrison and I found out. Vanessa blinked. It only now occurred to her that Abby's investigations might go beyond touching on the fractured pieces of Ven's life to helping fill in the spaces between them. Her pulse began to quicken. You found out why my dad was always sucking up to Mom's family? Abby nodded, opened her mouth, then closed it again, frowning. Vanessa's pulse accelerated again. She couldn't wait another moment for Abby to compose her reply. She'd been waiting her whole life. God damn it, why? Abby was breathing heavier now, her big eyes showing fright. You won't believe me. The only way this worked with Harrison and me was that we followed the trail together and figured it out at the same time. If I just tell you, you'll storm out. Vanessa stood up. Storming out is what I'm about to do, Abs. Abs was a name some of the older dance girls had used, finding it funny because her musculature was so underdeveloped. Abs has no abs, they'd say. Vanessa had never used it. She wouldn't stick up for Abby exactly, but she'd try to distract the others onto some other joke. But in her anger, she was using it now. Hearing the name from Vanessa, Abby shuddered and her self-control snapped. Immortality, she said, the word escaping like it had a will of its own. Your dad doesn't want to die, and he thinks the Lutchers know the secret. And they're not the only... Abby had to stop there because her voice was completely drowned out by Vanessa's laughter. She laughed out a lifetime of tension, frustration, fear, loneliness, and hate. Vanessa slumped back into the easy chair. She was lightheaded. She couldn't get her breath. She did her best to make herself stop, but then she'd look at Abby's earnest expression and it started back up again, raucously echoing through the quiet room. Eventually, she drooped forward, spent. The laugh had left her with nothing. The bricks she'd built her life from were gone. She felt gratitude to Abby for giving her this release, and resolved to do her best to really stop. She stayed drooped, but raised her head, and the terrified look on Abby's face almost started her laughing again. Abby, if you want to find the family with the secret to eternal life, 
<laughs> try to find one where my mom didn't die in a car wreck and Dan's dad didn't get stabbed to death. It's not that kind of thing. It's more of- I'm sorry, Abby, but I have to get out of here. No, Ven, stop. I need your help. The neck of Abby's sweater had gotten disarrayed again, and the revealed skin of her shoulder and upper chest made Vanessa think of asylum inmates. You need help, said Vanessa, rising, but not from me. You've got problems, Abby. I've known it ever since those stories you told about your mother traveling the world like Laura Croft. I ignored it and hoped you'd grow out of it, but I guess you didn't. Vanessa! shouted Abby on her feet and following Ven to the door while shaking her head vigorously as if to dispel the pain of Vanessa's words. Harrison and I are confronting Dad tomorrow. I need someone else to know what we're doing. Too many people in this just disappear without telling their stories. I need you to keep a secret for me, like I did for you. That got Vanessa's attention, and she halted in place. The kid deserves better, she thought, but Ven just didn't have much to give her right then. She had her own troubles. She resolved to say what she could. Abby, I'm very glad you came out tonight. It's great to see you, and it's wonderful that you've found someone. I hope whatever you're doing works out for you, but I think the sooner you leave all this behind, the better. Abby's face took on an eerie calm. I was born into it, she said, her eyes big with the lifetime of events that now made sense to her. So were you, and we'll be in it until we die. Vanessa looked at her with a sad smile, reached out and almost caressed her cheek, but instead pulled back her hand and walked out of the room, not looking back as the door closed behind her. In the present... Vanessa leaned against a pillar, let out sobbing moans of self-reproach, and thought, Was there anything I didn't do wrong? One thing, perhaps. When she softly knocked on Cynthia's apartment door, Magda had indeed been up. What did she want? She wanted me to get involved in some old business. I told her I just couldn't deal right now. Mag nodded. So at least, Vanessa told herself... She had neither betrayed Abby's confidence nor made fun of her. No, wait, she thought, that's not right. She hadn't betrayed Abby's secret, but whatever confidence Abby had placed in her, Vanessa had wadded up and thrown away. She knew it the instant she saw Abby's face under the words, Murders on Gold Coast. That had been the next night, Friday, lying on the apartment's small couch, as Ven took a quick internet break amidst catching up on schoolwork. Abby's unsteadily smiling college picture had looked out from the current news sidebar, and the bottom had fallen out of Vanessa's world. She clicked for more details. The article had nothing to add except the fact that Harrison, unpictured, was dead too. Her mind raced. She refelt a past sensation of putting her hand on the elbow of Abby's extended arm for support while preparing to execute a ballet kick. Abby, small as she was, had held the arm firm and steady, giving Vanessa help when she needed it. And now that memory of a touch seemed like all Vanessa had of her. Just a day earlier, she'd been annoyed that Abby might make a scene by saying she loved her. Ven hadn't feared the feelings themselves because they'd be so easy to dismiss. Abby was the fragile tag-along. It would be as natural for her to get a crush on Vanessa as it would be demeaning for Vanessa to return the sentiment. But now, 
Now, all Vanessa could think about was how, amongst all the almost meaningless pleasantries of the previous evening, she and Abby had never touched. Abby had been lost in the shuffle as greeting hugs were exchanged, and as the party wound down, they again hadn't hugged because it wasn't goodbye they were going off together. And then when the final moment came, Vanessa still hadn't touched her because she didn't want to prolong their farewell or give Abby any purchase she might use to drag Vanessa into her insanity. The sheen of perspiration below her bared shoulder had made her look contagious. I should have helped her, Vanessa said out loud on that couch, then continued inwardly. You don't leave a friend alone when you know they're in trouble. Even if the friendship is inconvenient. Even if the trouble is inside of them. If Abby had stood in front of her at that moment, Vanessa would have grabbed her, held her tight, and never let her go. But instead, the moment brought an updated story, saying Jonathan Strauss had been arrested for the murders of Abby and Harrison. Vanessa's first thought wasn't that Abby had been sane all along. It was that Abby's insanity really had been contagious, and that Vanessa, and possibly the rest of the world, had been infected. It was no more than they deserved for failing her. In the sculpture garden, there was a beep. Vanessa sucked in a sizable quantity of tears and snot and looked down at her phone. It was time to motor if she was going to make her lunch date with that lawyer. She'd been plotting their seemingly casual new acquaintanceship for days as a means of getting insights into the murders and Jonathan Strauss's plans. She pulled a tissue out of her purse and quickly removed a layer of her running eye makeup. She should stop wearing it, given all the crying she was doing— but she'd wanted to bring all her weapons to bear in enlisting Dan's help in her quest. And then he'd turned out to be useless, as always. You have been listening to Legacy Door, episode 1.9, Motives. Stacey Tappan was Vanessa Dorn. Teresa Echeveste was Abigail Strauss. And Jamie Gosling was Magda. The opening and closing music was Ethereal Thoughts by Victor Wayne. You can hear works by him at Toontank.com. The Legacy Door cover photograph is by Roxana and Ash. This episode's cover image is Ivy by Alison Griffith. You can find images by her on Unsplash. This concludes the first of our three seasons. Now that you've had a hint of what's really going on with Vanessa, the murder of Abby and Harrison, and in general... We hope you'll return in a few weeks to hear more of the investigation in Season 2's premiere episode, Pretense. Meanwhile, you can find us at Legacy Door Novel on Twitter and Facebook, or see the family trees, transcripts, and other supplementary material at our website, LegacyDoor.wordpress.com. To support our continuing efforts, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice or purchase the complete book in Kindle or paperback from Amazon, or as an audiobook from many retailers, including Audible. This podcast is made possible by Dueling Genre Productions, home of many fine podcasts. Legacy Door is copyright 2021 by Bob J. Kester, all rights reserved. This is Bob J. Kester. Goodbye for a little while.